Anybody thankful to be redeemed? My goodness, maybe you needed to be at church today to be reminded that you have been bought with a price. God didn't have to save you. He didn't have to love you. But he did. And he gave you a chance to hear the gospel. And he opened your heart to the gospel. And you should be able to go back to a place that says, that was the place of my redemption. For me, it was the foot of my father's bed as a seven-year-old boy. Maybe for others, it was the altar of a church. Maybe it was the back of a room after a church camp or a vacation Bible school. But please hear me. I hope you have a place. You don't have to remember what you said. You don't have to remember every circumstance that surrounded that moment. And you don't have to be able to go back to a calendar date. But you should go back to a place where you met Jesus. And you were redeemed. I'm so thankful to be saved. So, so thankful. Today's a special day because we're taking up the I Love My Church offering. All day today, both this morning in the offering and tonight in the offering, if you're unaware of what that is, it's an offering that we're going to start once a year. I give you as, as our church, as a church member, an opportunity to prove to God, I love my church. And nothing proves that hardly any more than us giving up our money sacrificially to the work of the gospel go forward so the house of God can be improved and I hope you've prayed and prepared and planned to give to God and to give through your church to him what he would have you to give we're going to take that offering as you give in that offering today uh, you can do so uh, by way of envelope and those are in front of you the seat back pocket just put I love my church offering on there so we know who's giving it and, and we know what to credit that for um, as well, and I meant to put a slide up, Brother Mike created that, and I forgot to put that on here. We will, dis we will discuss that um, uh, at the offering time. I, Pastor told me I'm doing the offering, so don't let me forget that, Kristen. There is a text-to-give option. Maybe if you didn't come, if you're a millennial like me and you don't carry cash like my dad does, um, or a checkbook anymore, um, then maybe you, you can text-to-give, and we'll put that on the screen in a moment uh, for the offering. Or you can even go online this afternoon, and you can give online if that's what you would like to do. But this is a big offering. It's an offering to meet the needs of God's house. I trust that every member of Fellowship Baptist Church will take enough ownership of their church to give to the place where God allows them to worship. If you're a guest today, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. As I preach, you feel free to grab a connection card. It's right in front of you in the chair, and you can fill that out. As I preach today, and you can have an opportunity to drop that in the offering plate. We'll tell you why that's important at the end of the service. Philippians chapter 1, message number 2 in our study through this book, verse by verse. The theme being partners in the gospel. Last week we discussed verse 1 through 6, or verse 1 through 7 rather. And Paul was commending this church. By way of thanksgiving, he was telling them, hey, this is what you are. I want to commend you for being a partner in the gospel. And then after he commends them, as he does so often in his epistles, he goes into a prayer for them. It's a petition. And in this prayer, he's not thanking God for what they are. 
in this prayer, he is praying to God for what he believes they should become. And so the first seven verses was, was a, a thanksgiving, a moment of thanksgiving. This is what you are. The next three verses, he's going to reveal this is what is on my heart for you to become as a church. Let's read verses 8 through 11. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, bless the preaching of your word. Make a difference. Help us not to be distracted from what you have to speak to us today. And Lord, I pray that we would make application where that's appropriate. And that our response to your preached word would be pleasing to you. Guide my thoughts and help me to be a blessing and a help. In your most precious name, amen. I can honestly say that I love my church. I love my church. And I'm not just talking superficially. Like I love where I get to go to church. I love, I, I love the children's ministries. I love the music. I love the building. It's not that. I can honestly say that God has worked in my heart a deep love for this place. I believe God started that work in me at the age of 16 in the year 2000, when my dad became the pastor of this place. I was in the auditorium when they, they voted him to be pastor a few years before, and then the first Sunday that he was pastor of this church, I saw my dad work as a staff member for 19 years before he ever became the pastor, and I saw a, a love in him for the church, but I, I saw a different kind of love when he began to pastor the church. A pastoral love, a very deep love, I, that, that was indicated to me when I saw my dad rejoice when the people of his church rejoiced. Meaning he would, he would officiate the wedding of a young couple that was raised in our church and he would see the joy in their eyes and the joy in their parents' eyes and then I would look at my dad and there would be joy in his eyes. When he would visit the hospital room of a young couple in our church who had their first baby, and you know the happiness and joy that's in a room like that. And I would watch my dad go to that hospital room and I would see the joy bubble up in his soul because his people have joy. I know that he has loved this church because for years I have, I have seen my dad's prayer list. That front and back has every member's name on it. And he has it separated into days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I've seen his love for the church he pastors demonstrated by the way he prays for you. And through his example and through God's call in my life to this place, I can see how the Lord is working this same kind of deep love for the people of this church, a pastoral love in Jenny's heart and in my heart for this place. And I love it. In verse number eight, we see that the apostle Paul he utters a prayer in verse 9, but in verse number 8, he demonstrates his love for the people of this church, a pastoral love, because he started this church. 
And he starts in verse number 8 by saying this, For God is my record. Meaning, what I'm about to tell you, God knows is the truth. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not stretching the truth so as to sound sentimental. This is coming from my heart. And he goes on to say these words, How greatly I long after you all in the bowels. Kind of different language. But what he means is I love you deeply. The deepest kind of care that I could have for anybody is the kind of care I have for you. And he says this love is of Jesus Christ. This isn't just sentiment. It's not just mere emotion. This is a deep love that has been given to me by God himself. And it's a love that reflects the very love Jesus has for you. And here's what I found to be true in my life. And in the Apostle Paul's life, in my dad's life, in any pastor's life, when you love somebody this deeply, with this kind of love, you want to see them become all that God wants them to be. When Paul looked at this church, he saw some true greatness in them because he said, you are real, true, authentic partners of the gospel. That scene in the fact that you open your homes for the work of the gospel. You're willing to pay a price for the work of the gospel. You give generously for the work of the gospel. And I applaud you for that. I thank you for that. But I love you too much not to mention something else I see in you that isn't near as great. A true weakness. And it had to do with their love for each other. This is why Paul spent so much time in the book of Philippians not just commending their generosity, but challenging their unity. That's why he reveals in chapter 2 that there were some church members that had some selfish ambition and their vain glory was creating strife and creating a rift among its membership. That's why in chapter 4 he mentions two ladies, one by the name of Yodius, one by the name of Syntyche. And they were fighting probably over whose name was worse. And Paul addressed these two godly women that were at odds. And he says, I don't just see an overwhelming generosity in you. I actually see an underwhelming unity. Something's going on with your love for each other, and I need to address this. And so in verse 9, he prays this. I want your love to abound yet more and more. Notice the one thing he didn't pray for was that their joy would abound. That their generosity would abound, their humility would abound. He prayed that their love would abound because to Paul, love was foundational to everything else in the Christian life. That's why when he gave the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, he said, but the fruit of the Spirit is first this, love. And then he said, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and so on. That's why to the church of Corinth, he said this, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity. Charity means love. He said, but the greatest of these is what? Charity. Meaning that if you will get your love for each other in the right place, everything else relationally will take care of itself. And Paul prayed this, I want your love to abound yet more and more. What does that mean? That, that word abound means to overflow. This is the picture I had in my mind. I remember as a kid, pranking my friends, you would shake up, go get me some pop. Sure, I'd love to get you some pop. And you get them a can or a bottle, and then you shake it up, and you're kind of trying to hold the snickering inside, and, and you hand it to them, and you step back like this, and you just watch as they open and explodes on them, and it just won't stop coming. 
It's just overflowing. And Paul's saying, this is the picture of what I want your love for each other to look like in the church of Philippi. I want it to abound. I want it to spread. I want it to overflow more and more. And unless some of you are thinking, man, that's mushy, that's gushy, and that's weak, consider what else he prayed connected to that love. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. Watch. In knowledge and in all judgment. Why would Paul add those two words here, knowledge and judgment? Please don't miss this. It's because love shouldn't be blind. True love sees 2020. True love has limits. And those limits, according to the Apostle Paul, are knowledge and judgment. You have seen a river flowing. A powerful current of water that can be so beneficial and so helpful for so many causes. But the reason why it is helpful is because it is within limits. It's river banks. But that same water, if it overflows its banks and it overflows its boundaries and its limits can be equally as dangerous as it is helpful. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, the last thing I want for you to have is a soft, mushy heart to rule your head. We can't let our love outrun our wisdom. Nothing is more harmful to a church than a weak, easy nature that is willing to tolerate anything and overlook any behavior. Paul is telling the, telling the church, I want you to be balanced. I want you to grow and abound and overflow in your love for each other. But it has to be limited by knowledge and by judgment. So what does he mean by that? What is knowledge? How is that one side of the river? How is that a, a, a limitation for our love. Well, he uses the same exact word in many of his other epistles. And if you go look at what he means by that, he means their knowledge of God. So, so he's saying that, that, that I want you to abound more and more in love. But here's the limitation. It has to be guided by your knowledge of God. Okay, where do we get our knowledge of God? Not a rhetorical question. It sounded like one, but I want you to answer out loud. Where do we get our knowledge of God? Scripture. Scripture. The Bible. In essence, Paul is saying, I want your love to overflow. I want it to superabound, but I want it to be guided by Scripture. I want it to be hemmed in. I want it to be controlled by your knowledge of God through the Scripture. This is so important, and, and I want you to get this, because so many Christians think that love and knowledge are mutually exclusive. They think, they, they think they're inseparable. I think you've got to have one or the other. For some, the Christian life is all heart but no head. And for others, the Christian life is all head but no heart. So for some, so long as they learn something when they go to church, so long as their theological ducks are in a row, so long as they know the order of all 66 books of the Bible, they're good. The Christian life is all about ingesting information. They don't want emotion in their worship. They don't want to sing love songs to Jesus at church. They just want church to be cold, dry, and boring, simply a place to learn. Yet some go to church and they go to the other extreme and it's all about love. Meaning the Christian life is, is just one meaningless, mindless, uh, emotionally driven event after another. And they're dependent on the next thing on the church calendar to keep them fired up for God. Their daily Bible reading is more about sensing the presence of God more than learning about God himself. It's not the theology they're concerned about, it's sensation. Now, I want you to understand the dangers of both extremes when it comes to loving each other within our own church family. If it's all about knowledge to you, 
you become a Pharisee. You become a know-it-all, and you have very little grace with people. No, it's all business to you. So when you come to church, you're not singing praises, you're looking around. And believe me, I have the best view, I know who does that. It's not about encountering God, it's about seeing who's here and who's there. They make me mad, I don't know why they think they're worshiping. And you get what I'm saying? You'll have no love to offset the weaknesses of your brother and sister in Christ. So you'll be legalistic, you'll be critical, you'll be irritable, and you'll be impatient. Yet if it's all about love for you, without knowledge, you'll tolerate things in your Christian brother and sister's life that true love should never tolerate. You'll say to someone, oh, my goodness, you're you're divorcing your wife? Leaving your kids? Going off to Mexico with someone from the office? This has got to be so difficult on you. Do you need a ride to the airport? (laughs) Oh, honey child, listen. No wonder you're so tired and too tired to go to school today. What do you expect, darling, when you stay until 3 o'clock in the morning playing video games? Why don't you sleep a little bit longer, and then I'll get you up around 11 o'clock. I'll take you to school, and I'll just make up something to your teacher so you don't get in trouble. How about that? Uh, No. That's love without knowledge. Has no limitations. Your knowledge needs, I mean, your love needs to be guided by what the Scripture says about those you love and the situations they're in. But that's not the only limitation Paul puts on their growing love. He also says that he wants their love to be guided by what? Judgment. You study that word judgment, it means the ability to discern. It means insight. Remember, the context is their relationships and their love for each other. So what I believe Paul's referring to here is is that he wants their love to be guided by an understanding of the person they're trying to love and the situation that that person is in. It's called insight. Here's what that means. If a friend just lost a job, your insight into the situation and your understanding of the individual you love will cause you to realize that right now is probably not the right time to openly celebrate the promotion that you just got. If your child is not good at athletics, then your understanding of your child, and most importantly, your love for them, will lead you to not force the issue of going out for school sports. If a young couple is struggling with infertility or regular miscarriages and your insight into that couple's life and their situation tells you that they're still struggling emotionally to deal with this, you might not tell too many stories about how cute your kids are when they're around. Do you see how insight can guide your love? Like knowledge can guide your love? To sum it up, Paul Paul says this, I want so badly... For you to have a growing love that overflows for each other and is guided by knowledge and judgment. And I need to stop here and say, I want the same thing for this church. So bad. Our pastor wants the same thing for Fellowship Baptist Church. We want this place to be a place where love is abounding. As a church, we're so good at pushing liberal love for those outside of these walls. And I like that, and I think we should. But what about having some liberal love for those inside of these walls? Is it not equally as important to love one another as it is to love the lost? Paul's trying to tell this church, you're so good at loving people on the outside, you're partners in the gospel. You'll give, you'll open your home, you'll pay the price. But it's all about reaching all those people, and you come to church and you fight with the people in here. 
He's saying, I want you to love people in here. I mean, listen, so what if you can pump over 1,600 gallons of gas and wash over 100 windows for people in our community if you can't love the person across the auditorium from you? So what if you give liberally to help the poor if you can't even give forgiveness to your own brother or sister in Christ? So what if you hand out hundreds of invitations to friend day so the lost can come hear the gospel if you never once invite someone in your own church family to a close relationship with you? You hold your church family like this. Are you saying we need to stop showing liberal love? Absolutely not. These two things aren't mutually exclusive. They, they go together. We ought to be abounding in love for those outside of this place and for those inside of this place. I'm talking about growing every week in our love for each other. Why is that so important? And why are you so passionate about it? I'm passionate about it for the same three reasons Paul was. And he says, let me give you the results of a church that's growing in love. And for the rest of his prayer, he does that. And he starts with this. A growing love will result in a discernment that leads to excellence. Verse 10 says that you may approve things that are excellent. What's he saying? He's saying when you're growing in your love for those inside of your church, you will have a discernment to choose what is best or excellent for those you love. Now we're going to get practical and I hope you'll follow me. But what does this look like? A discernment that leads to excellence. What does it look like in church? Looks like this. Someone makes a comment. You're not sure how to take it. Was it kind of a jab at you or was it totally unintentional and innocent? Should you address it and clear the air, or should you let it go and assume the person meant nothing by it? What's the best or excellent choice to make? One of the kids in your Sunday school classes acting up. You're the teacher. You're the helper. You're the leader. Should you manage as best you can for the sake of the child because you know they need to hear the gospel, and you know you want to be able to minister to that child's family? Or for the sake of the others in the class, should you ask the child to leave, perhaps offending the family altogether? What do you choose? What's best? Your sister in Christ seems to be going through a difficult time. Some trauma has occurred in, in her life, a divorce, a loss of a job, a death of a loved one, deterioration in her health, whatever the case may be, but she's struggling, and so you comfort her, and you support her, and you help her, and you encourage her. But months later, she hasn't gotten any better. She hadn't, she hadn't seemed to recover in any way. She's still acting needy. She's still carrying her hurt and burdens for others with her sorrow. Is she still really struggling with her emotions, you might think? Or is she selfishly hanging on to the wound because it makes others pay attention to her? Does she need more compassion or does she need a kick in the rear? Should you hug her or shake her? Should you comfort her or give her a dose of reality? What's best? I don't know. I love her. I can't tell you what's best in these situations or what's best in the situation you're facing with your brother or sister in Christ. But here's what I do know. If you are growing in love for each other, you'll make the best choice. Your love for the person involved will give you a discernment that will lead you to do what's best in that situation for them. I examined this in my own life and I thought, man, when I've made less than the best choice in these kind of difficult situations relationally, it's, I could trace it back to the fact that my choice was driven by my pride and my selfishness. 
I made my choice about me, what's comfortable for me, what's favorable for me, because real love, real growing love, does not make the best choice for you. It makes the best choice for others. Paul said a growing love leads to discernment. He said, number two, a growing love leads to integrity. Specifically, integrity that prevents offense. Look at the second part of verse 10. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, what does he mean by sincere? He said, if you have a growing love, you're going to be sincere, and you're not going to offend people. You're not going to be a stumbling block to people. So the key there is understanding what it means to be sincere. That word sincere, here's what it literally means, and I'll have to explain it. It comes from a phrase, without wax. Without wax. Are we talking about earwax? What are they talking about? Well, in that part of the world, they used to make these beautiful, delicate dishes or vases. They would be equivalent to our finest china today. But because the dish or vase was so thin, sometimes as it dried, it would have a small crack in it. And, and this would have made the vase or, di or dish very weak. It, it would break easily. So it was no good. So you would think, well, a merchant would just trash it. No. A dishonest merchant would still try to get money out of it. And here's what he would do. He would take a very light wax. And he would fill in uh, that, that crack in that vase with that wax. And, and, and then he would glaze over it. He would put the glaze over that piece of clay. And you couldn't even tell the crack was there, looking at it on the shelf. And he would still make his money. Unless a good shopper took that clay and took it outside of the shop where the sun was shining and held it up against the sun. And with the light shining behind it, you could tell whether there was wax in it or not. You could tell if that merchant was being sincere or insincere without wax. Remember, Paul was dealing with a church who had some members in it who were serving out of vainglory with selfish ambition. Watch, they might have looked on the outside like they loved everybody. But their love wasn't inwardly pure. It had some wax. And Paul is saying, when you have a growing love, then that love in your heart will have no hidden motives, no pretense. It will be absolutely authentic towards one another. Could I ask you a question? If we were able to test your love for others in this church where you worship, and, and we could test it to the sun like they would test a vase in the Bible days, would it, would it be revealed that your love has some cracks in it? Would it be revealed that, yeah, you come to church, but you're trying to glaze over some things in your relationship with other people? It's easy to come to church and look like a clean, pretty vase, isn't it? I'm talking about a clean, pretty vase that loves everybody in this place. Yet on the inside, we have some cracks of jealousy and bitterness and pride that we're trying to cover up. See, here's the dangerous thing about that. What's on the inside will eventually come out. And when it does, we will be an offense. That's what Paul's saying. That word offense means stumbling block. So whenever you come to church, watch. And, and, and there's a brother or sister in Christ that you're jealous of for whatever reason. You can glaze over that for weeks. But eventually what's on the inside will come out when it's squeezed hard enough. And usually jealousy comes out by way of gossip. 
And when that brother or sister hears what you said about them to that person, guess what it does? It trips them up. It makes them stumble. Oh, if there's a brother or sister in Christ that simply, if you're honest, you resent, I'm not saying it's like you're absolutely bitter towards them. Here's what I mean. You just don't like them. Why? Maybe they get on your nerves. Simply just get on your nerves. Personality different. Maybe it's because you know the real them outside of this place, and you look at them here, and you look at them out there, and that's a total contradiction, and everybody's falling for it, and you know the truth. And it makes you say, oh, it's not real. It could be any number of reasons, something they did to somebody you loved. You can't pretend, listen, you can't pretend like you can go to church and just glaze over that crack in your heart week after week after week without it ever coming out and hurting somebody. Because at just the right time, you will say something, you'll joke in a way that's sarcastically insulting, It'll be body language, it'll be tone, it'll be silent treatment. Something that comes out that reveals, wow, you don't like me. In other words, you can only fake your love so long before it hurts somebody. How do we prevent that? You pray. And you say, God, give me a love for this person I can't have on my own. Give it to me. And then as you ask God for that, here's what happens. You begin to, the spirit begins to produce that fruit of love in you as you yield to the spirit every time you interact with that person. Spirit of God says, be nice, be nice. Spirit, Spirit of God says, kill them with kindness, kill them with kindness. Spirit of God says, pray for that person you think is a hypocrite, stop and pray for them. And as you yield to the spirit, here's what comes out, the fruit of love. You can't wake up tomorrow and love somebody you don't like. It doesn't work that way. It's a spirit-produced attribute in your life as you pray for it and you yield to it every single day. Somebody say amen. amen. Paul says, when you have a growing love, you have a discernment, you have an integrity. Watch. He says, you're gonna, it's what I just talked about. You're going to start seeing some fruit that glorifies God. Go to verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. Of God. If you don't have a growing love for each other, here's going to be the fruit. Offense. You're going to hurt people. And you might think in your mind, why do I always, oh, I'm always in the midst of drama. I'm always upsetting people. It could be because you don't really have the true fruit of growing love. It's not authentic. There's cracks in it. But if you do, then you're going to have righteous fruit that at the end of the day glorifies God. And that's what our life is all about, bringing glory to God. We want people to look at the fruit of our church. We want people to look at the fruit of our life and say, wow, they are overflowing in love. How do they do that? Well, you've got to be growing. What might that fruit look like? Well, when a brother or sister makes that comment that could be interpreted as offensive, watch. Because you're growing in love towards them, you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Overlook what they said and refuse to get offended. In that response, guess who's glorified? God. He's honored. When someone appears to be in church, what they really aren't outside of church, and in your heart it bugs you, it distracts you. Well, because you love them, instead of getting critical, you're going to stop and you're going to pray for them. That's the fruit of real love. 
And in that response, you bring glory to God. Are you getting this? When a parent's kids get more attention than yours, instead of getting jealous, you get happy for them. And you say, you know what? Because of my growing love for them, I'm going to just go and tell that mom, you know what? You're doing a great job with your kids. And in that response, you bear the fruit of love and God gets glory. Do you see it? Do you see it? Here's what Jesus said in John 13. By this, by what? By love. Shall all men know that you're my disciples if ye have love one to another. Do you get the depth of this? He didn't say when people walk into church, here's how they know you're serious about God. When you have great passionate worship. Mm -mm. Here's how they're going to know that you're passionate about God when you have greeters that are friendly. Nope. When you have a children's ministry and nurseries and things are in order, nope. Orderliness. That is a result. That's good. But that's not what convinces people you're serious about God. Jesus said, you want a lost person to walk in these doors and be absolutely convinced there's something different about this place. Then here's what's going to be the indicator. There is a love in this place that's unlike the love I get in the world. No, there's people from different races. There's diversity. People from different walks of life. There's single people. There's adult people. There's young people. There's old people. There's people who've been married for 40 years. There's people who've been divorced two times. There's people who've been saved their whole life and people who got saved last week. There are people who never tried drugs in their life and there's a recovering addict. And they're going to look and say, how do these people get along? And they're going to come to this conclusion. They must be serious about God. Your love for one another. God's working in me. The pastoral love for this church like I've seen in my dad for years. And because of that, I want you to become everything God wants you to be. And the best place I know to start is love. Because when you have love, a lot of other things will take care of themselves. Do you hear me? A lot of other things will take care of themselves. And when your love is abounding, it's coming out of the pot bottle. Guess what we'll see? Discernment that leads to excellence. Integrity that prevents offense. And fruit that glorifies God. Praise the Lord. The walkie-talkie agrees with me. How should I respond to the message? Well, the first way you should respond is, is, is if, you, if you've never known the love of God yourself, you can't give it to anybody else. It'll be a manufactured, superficial love. What, what am I saying? If you've never been saved, oh, you need to get saved. How? What's that all about? Well, I'll just say it this way. Number one, you admit that you're a sinner. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Number two, you believe that Jesus died for your sin, but God showed or commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for you. I love this. Number three, call upon God to save you. For whosoever shall call, that means you, you call out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Watch, you shall be saved. 
as I learned as a kid, it's as easy as A, B, C. If you've never known the love of God, I want to invite you to do that. That's your response to this message. How do you do it? You, you come forward and meet me right here in a moment. Just like Ethan did last week. Came down that aisle, met me, had Brother Sid take him in another room. He came to know the love of God like he's never known it before. I want that to happen in somebody's life today. I hope it will. But Brother Tyler, I'm already saved. Great. Then here's how you respond. You examine if your love is a growing love. How are your relationships in this, in this place? Are you struggling? Is there disunity? Hey, there might, there might not be even a growing love in your own marriage today. Does that need to be addressed? If so, here's your response. You repent. You confess it to God at an altar, and you make a plan to change that in your life. That's your response. Okay, what if my, my love's growing? Then as I said last week, when, when God described what his house should be. He said it should be a house of prayer. And so I want to invite everybody to pray because that's what church should be about. What do we pray for? I want us to all pray for this, that Satan wouldn't even have a, a, a toe in this place to disrupt the unity of Fellowship Baptist Church. That we would never be used by Satan or the evil one to, to, to disrupt or put a lid on the abounding love that God wants to see in this place. Can we pray for that together today? Can you come to an altar here in just a moment, take a knee, and say, God, may this place be a place of liberal love, both out there and inside here. If you agree with the word of God today, say amen. amen. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?